We are going to be in John chapter 17. As we get started, would you pray with me? Father, as we look today at this incredible prayer of Jesus, we ask for your help. Our help, your help that we would be able to understand and see what it is that is in the heart of Jesus as he prays for us to you. God, I pray that you would stir in us affections for you and that we would feel the love of Christ and that it is through that lens that we would be able to interpret what we are to learn from this, but how we are to live, and most importantly, who we are called to be. This is work that can only be done in the Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, please come. Use this time to bring glory to the Father through the Son. Amen. We're going to spend the last two weeks of this little brief series on this prayer of Jesus. So as we've been covering in John 15 and 16, Jesus is giving instructions, preparing his disciples for when he's going to depart. But now we turn to this incredible piece of scripture where we see Jesus actually praying for his followers and then by extension praying for us. And it's a unique opportunity to get a glimpse into the heart of Jesus as he talks to the Father. I don't know, I don't know about you, but as a, as a parent, there are so many things I want to instruct my children in. There are so many things that I, I want to teach them about and share with them and, and pass on to them. And, and as much as I try and try, I, I've had to come to realize that, that the thing that helps them the most, the help, thing that helps them grow the most, is actually not um, my well-planned lectures. It's actually not just me telling them, like, this is how you should live and this is who you should be. That it's actually my pleading to God on their behalf. And the, the older I get, the more I am struck with the importance of just pleading with God on behalf of my children. And not only that, but if my kids wanted to know what it's like to be their dad, what it's like to to be a parent, if they wanted to know what is actually on my heart, they would probably be better served. In fact, I would say they would definitely be better served, not in dissecting my lectures to them, but by hearing my cries to God. By hearing me pray to my Father in heaven on their behalf, they, I think, would get a different glimpse. And they do. I I pray for them on behalf of them. But I'm thinking, like, even in the quiet moments of my heart, even in those moments where I'm just pleading, when I just feel like I have nothing left to give, and I'm frustrated, and I'm confused, and I'm worried, and all these different things, that to hear that pleading to God would say something about my heart. And we get that opportunity here with Jesus. This extraordinary prayer. And we need to let it sink in that he is praying for us. It's quite a, it's quite a magnificent thing. So I want to just 
look at this prayer. And I want to just see what what is it that Jesus is praying for us on, on our behalf? And what can we gather about his heart? And what it says about who he is and what it says about who we are called to be. Starts in verse 1 of, of chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So he's saying the hour has come, this work that I have done to glorify you. Now the time has come for you to finish this work by glorifying me. And he's foreshadowing the, 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 his death and resurrection. And by the way, this is, and this could be a whole other sermon. I'm not going to go on this tangent for long. But it is a really striking place where we see the Trinity on display again. So there's, a lot of times people will say when, I, when I'm talking to people like, well, the Trinity doesn't, you know, it's never mentioned in Scripture. And it's true that word isn't used, but it is all throughout Scripture. All of, the, all of these, the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit united together one God in three persons. And we see it right here when he says in verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus is saying, look, you and I shared this glory before any of this was created. And that dispels the myth that Jesus was created by God the Father. It also dispels the myth, by the way, that God created mankind because he was lonely or because um, he just, he's an egomaniac and just wanted some creatures to, to worship him and sing praises to him. It dispels all of this because Jesus says that glory that we had before anything was created, restore that. He doesn't say, like, give me now this better glory that we have now that we have all these people here to worship us. He says, now restore it. Jesus, who set aside that to become flesh and dwell among us, who emptied himself, subjecting himself to the creation, he's saying, now it's time. Restore that glory. I really would like to keep going on that, but I need to stay on track. Jesus is praying some specific things for us. And I just want to go through a few of those. And then next week, we're going to deal with a couple more that he prays for. The first one I want to talk about this morning is what he says there in, in this first section, that, that we would know him, that we would know the Father. Look what he says in, in verse 2, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Notice it does not say, this is how you get eternal life. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you and Jesus Christ. It's not that Jesus is your ticket into this kind of wonderland where you're just not punished for all the bad things that you did. 
saying something far more profound than that. That he is this life. When, when Lauren and I were first married, we moved out to Southern California. And we lived about um, 20 minutes from Disneyland. Now, show of hands, how many of you think that sounds awesome? Yeah, there are definitely more adults who think that's awesome than would admit right now. But don't worry, I won't out you. It was, we were so close. Like, to be that close to Disneyland, growing up in Iowa, I thought that was kind of cool. Like, we were literally, like, 20 minutes from it um, at, like, 2 a.m. with traffic about four hours away. But we would, we would sometimes like to go. And the thing about going is we were poor. We had no money to do any of that stuff. But the great thing about living in Southern California is that you always know somebody that worked at Disney. And so what would happen is I had a cousin who worked a long time for Disney. And so he, he told us, hey, whenever you want to go to Disneyland, just let, us, let me know and I will call a friend. I'll make some calls and we'll get you in for free. I was like, what? That's my favorite price. I will, I'll take you up on that. So um, Lauren and I remember the first time that we went. And so the whole deal was that my cousin would tell us, okay, this is my friend Susan. Um, you're going to meet her at this tree by this fountain and, you know, introduce yourself and then she will sign you in. And I remember the first time of doing that, it just felt like it was nerve-wracking. I didn't know who Susan was. I'd just been told about her. I didn't know what she looked like. She'd just been described to me. I didn't even know what the tree was going to look like by the fountain. I'd never been there. And so I remember going there and then wondering, like, okay, these are like, you're supposed to be able to sign friends and and family in, right? So I thought, okay, I don't even know this person. Are they going to, like, ask me questions? Like, I I imagine the scenario where they would, she would walk me up to the gate and then she would sign me in and she'd be like, oh, so how do you know each other? And, you know, what's her favorite color? And things like that. And I would be kind of left going, I don't, I don't actually know her. And so that's the first time we went, I kind of looked around and we, we found who we thought maybe was her and walked up next to her and said, hey, we're Jay and Lauren, you know, we're Denny's cousins, like that, you know, are we, are you going to sign us in? She's like, oh yeah, it's great to meet you. Sure, come on up and, and we'll get you taken care of. And so she, she takes us up to the, to the gate and she signs us in and we kind of look and waiting for the questions and waiting, like, is this actually happening? And she said, okay, there you go. And the gate, person at the gate said, yeah, you're all set. And so we kind of walk in past the gate and we kind of look back and, and Susan was like waving to us because she said she had to go back to work. She doesn't work at Disney anymore and she was going back to do her job. And, and so we just kept kind of sneaking in, looking back, sneaking in, looking back. And then we realized finally like, okay, I guess this is all right. And we just kind of took off, leaving Susan in the dust to go back and do her other work. And over time, we did this a few more times, and each time I had to remind myself of, oh yeah, what was her name again? Oh, Susan, right, okay. And what, what did she look like? And okay, and how does this work? And where are we meeting her? And each time I still had a little bit of nerves of like, how is this actually going to happen? But at the end of the day, it always worked. She'd take me up to the gate, sign me in, say, she would say, they're, they're with me. We would go on into Disney, and she would leave. And for a long time, I thought of heaven this way. For a long time, I, I thought that at the gates, I would, I would say enough, I would know enough, but I'd wonder like, okay, am I really going to know enough? And, and, and at the gates, like Jesus would come up there and he would, he would kind of sign me in. 
And I'd be like worried, like, are they going to ask me questions I don't know the answers to about him? Are they going to like slap me with some Bible trivia or some other things? Are they going to, are they going to show me all my sins and make sure like they post things that I've done in my life and say, you know, was this a sin or not a sin? And I'd have to hit the right buzzer. Like my mind is very overactive with imagination here. I'm like, well, that's questionable. Like definitely bad. Nope. Got that one. And you know, all these different things. And I, I just would see that then, okay, but at, at the end of it all, if, if he signs me in and I get past that, then I could just go into this wonderland. And, and then what? It took me a long time to realize that Jesus is not the ticket at the gate to get into this wonderful place. He is the wonderful place. He is the joy. He is the treasure. It would be like having Susan sign us in and realizing, well, I don't want to go in there without you. I just want to hang out with you. It took me a long time to realize that what makes heaven beautiful is that we are eternally known and loved by the Father through the Son. This is why I don't think it's so fruitful, by the way, that when we share the gospel, just talking about hell and heaven, as if, like, okay, well, you want to avoid hell, right? And you'd rather go to heaven. It's, it's a strange thing, especially in our culture today, to tell people, to try to convince somebody that they're going to a place that they don't believe exists and tell them like, oh no, but good news, you don't have to go to that place you don't believe exists. Rather, you can go to this awesome place with this king that you don't know or care about. It's kind of like getting invited to a birthday party where you don't know the person and you don't care. It doesn't really make sense. But what is actually, the offer that's actually being made is so much more profound than just not going to a bad place and going to a good place. It is to be united with our creator and to be known and loved by him. He is the life. In John 11, John recounts the story of Jesus going to his friend Lazarus's grave, who'd been dead for four days. And upon getting there, his dear friends, Martha and Mary, uh, Lazarus's sisters, come to him. And Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. If you'd just been here. But even now, I know that whatever I ask, like you, you will do. God will give it to you. And Jesus tells her, Martha, don't worry, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. What's she saying? Like, I know there's this event, there's this thing out there that, that I'm supposed to have hope in, and I know that one day that's all going to be okay. But she's talking about something more immediate. And Jesus said to her, we're not talking about this thing that happens one day. The resurrection is not just some event that will happen. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He is 
the resurrection and the life. He is. The, the kingdom comes with him. He brings the kingdom. Because wherever he is king, that is the kingdom. After the first service, I had one of our older saints who is an incredibly godly man. He'd probably be sad if I called him older. No, he would actually appreciate that. Older saints. And he said, you know, I've been struck with this thought that even if this is where I was, if I was perfectly united with Jesus, that would be enough. And I was just so encouraged by someone who's been following Jesus for that long, who is looking forward to glory and looking forward to resurrection and looking forward to all of that, saying, if, all of that without Jesus is worthless. I just need Jesus. And so that's what Jesus is praying for them, that they would know you. This is eternal life. And our danger is that we try to substitute knowing about God for actually knowing him and knowing things and thinking that we're going to get there and we need to pass some kind of theological exam or that we need to be able to show enough things that we've done. And we just can't get over this idea like Robbie talked about last week that our righteousness is given by Jesus. It is only in our connection to Jesus. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Notice what's in there, by the way. He says... Only the ones who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So then that makes it sound like, okay, right, I've got to do the right things. If I do the will, if I do the things that God wants me to do, that's how you get into heaven. And yet, he specifically says, then he gives things that they were called to do. They said, well, we did those things. We cast out demons. We did many mighty works. And Jesus calls them workers of lawlessness. It's because the will of the Father is not that you and I would just behave and know right from wrong and do it. The will of the Father is that we abide in the Son. That we seek Jesus. That we become reconciled to him through the cross. That's the will of the Father. So coming to church does not save you. Changing your behavior does not save you. Doing mighty works will not save you. The only thing that saves is being known by Jesus. Being attached to him. He is your cover. He is your refuge. He is your righteousness. And so practically, one of the things that that means that I think is so important is as you read the Bible, as we're doing together as a church family, as you read the Bible, you don't read it to scour it for all the right stances on all the right positions and all the right things, the things that I'm supposed to do and all the list of things that are prohibited and things I'm supposed to do and not do. You scour it for who Jesus is. And that will tell you who you are actually called to be. The very nature and character of, and heart of Jesus Christ. 
And that is who he says you are, that when you have been declared righteous by receiving grace and forgiveness and the mercy of the cross, when you receive that, you are given righteousness and you are declared righteous before him. And then we fight every day to believe that that's who we really are. And I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus prays this next thing. He prays also that God would keep us. In verse 9, he says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Look what he's saying. He's saying, all of these that you've given me, they are yours. They belong to you. And I have kept them. While I've been here on earth, I have kept them. And I have guarded them. And now he prays for them. He's saying, like, now, Father, I'm coming back to you to rejoin in that glory, so keep them. You now keep them and guard them. I mean, just think about Jesus praying this, like praying, which is the will of the Father, saying, I, I've been doing this, and, and his love for us is such that he's saying to the Father, okay, now you, you keep them. And not like he's asking, like, gee, I sure hope you'll do it. It's in the same will as the Father. It's the Father's desire to keep us. He's praying back the will and the desire of the Father to him and declaring what is to happen. In verse 15, just go down to chapter 17, verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So, Father, I'm coming back to you. You guard them and keep them. Isn't that amazing? That not only is Jesus doing this, but now he's pleading to God and praying on our behalf that we would be kept by him. And he does the same thing as he did for the disciples. He does it for you and me. Interceding on our behalf. Even to this day. Look at Romans 8, 31. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is one of those truths. There's a couple in this prayer that are just so mind-blowing to me that when I really stop and think about the fact that Jesus Christ right now is interceding on our behalf. And it is all in the will of the Father. See, remember, you have to remember something key here. Jesus never does anything outside of the will of the Father. The Trinity is in perfect unity. They don't have any disagreements. They're not hashing things out. We get this picture that, that God is like this angry dad and that Jesus is the older brother trying to talk dad off the ledge and say like, hey, just take it easy on them. Like, they didn't really mean anything by it. Like, I think we can make this better. It's not that. It is the will of the Father that the Son intercedes on our behalf. It is his great joy and pleasure. And it is in that joy that he prays this in verse 13. 
But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy, my joy, fulfilled in themselves. This is another thing that Jesus prays for us, that his joy would be fulfilled in us. This is a pretty powerful joy. This is the joy that when set before Jesus allowed him to endure the cross. It's that joy that comes from being unified with the Father and being glorified with the the Father. To do the will of the Father. To accomplish the mission that he has been given. This is his joy that Christ has. This this all-encompassing joy. And he's praying to the Father, give them that joy. Fulfill that in them. I mean, that's why he's telling them all these things. In verse 11 of chapter 15, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. That's the reason he's telling them all these things and preparing all them, because he wants us to experience the fullness of joy in him. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up, joy felt like kind of a bonus in the Christian life. Like, for me, Christianity was essentially like, I got to believe the right things and do the right things. And if I'm joyful about it, that's just bonus. You know, all things being equal, probably good that I'm joyful about it. And maybe as I get older, I'll be more joyful about doing these things. But right now, I just know this is what I'm supposed to believe and this is what I'm supposed to do. But that's not the gospel. That's not the offer. Like we are offered abundant, joyful life. That is a key distinguishing mark of the early church. We talked a couple weeks ago how they were known for their love. It was this commandment that Jesus had given them that you go and love one another. And so they did. And they were known across the world for their love. But they were also known for their joy. They were full of joy. Full of it. They rejoiced all the time. Good luck reading through Acts and not seeing they were full of joy. They rejoiced. They rejoiced all the time. They rejoiced when people were saved. They rejoiced when people were broken out of prison. They rejoiced when people were beaten and counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his namesake. They joyfully sold their properties and gave away their money. Joy, joy, joy everywhere. Constantly. And the world couldn't explain it. It was in a long list of things that the world could not explain looking at this church. They couldn't explain how they loved one another, how they cared for those who could offer nothing in return, regardless of ethnic background or socioeconomic status. They couldn't explain why they would repay evil with good. Like how they would, rather than fight against their persecutors, they would pray for them and treat them with kindness. And they were full of joy. You would think, even if you could take care of all those responsibilities, even when Jesus left and he said, look, it's better if I go and the Spirit is going to be in you and you're going to do all these incredible things, you would think that even as they're doing those things, they're like, okay, but we're doing the job, but at some point, Jesus, you're going to return again, right? And there'd be like some kind of somber, you know, frustration about it and being like, how long is this going to carry on? But instead... They were full of joy. Does that mark us as a people? 
Like, are these the things that the culture would say about the church of Jesus Christ today? Are these the first things off the top of their head? Wow, they sure love one another well. Man, they are just joyful people. I don't know if people would describe me that way. Now look, I, I could go on a tangent here describing the difference between happiness and joy. That's a pretty common thing to do, to say like, well, look, joy is not the same thing as happiness because otherwise you can get this idea that like, okay, well, being a Christian means just pretending you got it all together, being happy all the time, being positive, and it's just, and it ends up being kind of like a more self-promotional like thing of like just positive attitude. But that's not what it is. But the reason I'm not going to go down that tangent is because I think we often use that tangent to fall into another ditch, which is where we say, okay, joy and happiness are not the same thing. Therefore, I'm never happy. And so I can be joyful even though I walk around unhappy and miserable all the time. Well, that's not really true either. It's kind of similar to what we do when we say, okay, we're supposed to love everyone. And then that just feels really like difficult. And so we say, well, yeah, 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 you love everyone, but you don't have to like everyone. Heard that? Yeah, the problem with that is then we use that as justification for not actually loving anybody. And so I don't want to do that with joy. But here's what I do want to do. I want to say that joy is not a fake happiness. It is not a fake optimism. It is not pretending like everything is okay. I want to say this. That he is not saying. When this, we are commanded to rejoice always. We are, the early church is filled with joy. We are called to be marked with joy. He's not saying that we don't have sorrow. Listen. The opposite of joy is not grief. I would say the opposite of joy is bitterness. Joyful people weep and grieve and lament. But joyful people do not grumble and complain and become bitter. There's a big difference. Grief turns to bitterness when there is no hope. If I have no hope, then my, my grief takes root and it becomes bitterness. Weeping turns to grumbling and complaining when we are not satisfied in Christ. When we don't believe that he works all things together for good. We don't trust him in that. We're actually commanded to weep and to grieve and to lament. Jesus does in this very section. Chapter 16, right before this, verse 20. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. I don't know about you, but I feel like I've been guilty of acting like a lot of people can take my joy from me. 
And it's because it's not in the right source. But when we are abiding in Christ, and when we are known by him and know him, even our tears are lined with hope. Not wishful thinking, but a rock-solid hope that he will wipe away every tear from every eye, and he will use every pain and turn it for good. This is a difficult concept of how God turns sorrow into joy. How he turns mourning into rejoicing. C.S. Lewis in his book, The, The Great Divorce, says this. Some mortals say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. This is a concept that I have seen for years in scripture and I don't feel like I can fully grasp it. It just always, like, it feels like it's right there and then it's kind of like, you know, trying to catch a balloon or like a beach ball in in a swimming pool where just the harder you try to grasp for it, the more it just kind of floats away from you. That's how this feels to me. This idea that, that God doesn't just cover up our pain. Heaven is not the promise that he just covers up our pain like dumping a bunch of sugar into a very bitter drink. But rather, he takes all of that pain and that bitterness and that drink and transforms it and turns it into sweetness. I think that I will live the rest of my life and never fully grasp that. That the pain that is in my past and the grief and the weeping and the lamenting that I have done and that I've sat with others and done with them and when I've heard of the horrifying things that have happened to some of you that that pain will not just be gotten rid of. It'll actually be redeemed. And the depth of that pain will be the extent of that joy. I think I will go my entire life and never fully grasp that until one day when scales fall from my eyes and I will see face to face as I stand face to face with Jesus and I think I will have the biggest light bulb moment of my life. So you who grieve, you who weep and lament, you who have gone through incredible pain and hurt, either from what you have caused or what has been done to you, Understand that as you grieve and weep and lament, you are not in sin. That grieving is not a sign of lacking joy in Christ. But let that grief carry you into the arms of Jesus. Who grieves with you now for a little while. When he comes to the grave of Lazarus, he doesn't say to Mary and Martha, Why are you crying? What's the big deal? It's all going to get taken care of anyway. 
He weeps with them. He grieves with them and yet rejoices. Because one day he is returning. And when he does, he will turn every sorrow into joy for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You will no longer remember the anguish, but you will only see redemption and restoration. And everything will be that much more beautiful for once having been so sad. And that joy will never be taken from you. That's the kind of joy that we are to be made, that we are to be known for. If we don't do that, if we don't lament and grieve and weep like that and let it go into joy and rejoicing at what Jesus is doing and what he will continue to do and what he will do finally one day. Otherwise, if we don't do that, it will turn into frustration and bitterness and anger. And I see that happening. I see it happening in me and around me where that, 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 that grief over the brokenness of the world turns into frustration and anger. And we start finding ourselves saying things that we wouldn't normally say and that we know are not Christ-like. But it just, it's so confusing because I feel like I, I've got to say this and I've got to point this out and I've got to deal with this. And, and it's confusing because the thing we desire is good and it's from God. But what we've missed is that we've allowed that grief to turn into bitterness and frustration, not trusting the one who says, I've got this. I have you. I am working all of this together. I am restoring your joy and it will never be taken from you. And we have to help one another guard against that. Like don't, don't let your brothers and sisters go down the path of grumbling and complaining and frustration and bitterness. But rather, and you don't, you don't stop them from doing that by telling them to buck up. It's not that big of a deal. Or to throw off lofty um, sayings like, we just got to let go and let God. Or, you know, God's going to, you know, it's, it's all going to work out in the end. It'll be fine. No, we respond as Jesus does and we weep with our brothers and sisters and we lament and we grieve and we point to the glory we have in Jesus. And when we do that, when we can receive that joy, when that joy is fulfilled in us, that starts to sanctify us. That truth of the gospel that this is what God does Look what he says in, in verse 15. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Robbie said last week that righteousness, you're either righteous or you are not. There's no varying degrees of righteousness because our righteousness comes from Jesus, not from our own works. And so if you are in Christ, you're declared righteous, not because of your works, but because of his. And if you're not in Christ, then you are not righteous. And that, that it's just, it's either or. It's a binary option. But, but sanctification is not the same way. Sanctification is the process of being formed into that image, becoming more like Jesus the nature and character and heart, becoming the person that we were declared to be on the cross. 
Learning to live like that takes time. To live in this new nature, in this new identity. And that is a process of character and heart and nature, not of behavior modification. And not of knowledge. Knowledge is a servant of that fruit. It is not the fruit. And you might say, and I, and I get this sometimes when people say, they would look at passages like this and say, well, he says, sanctify them in the truth. That's why I say truth is more important than anything. Because he says, sanctify them in the truth. So there you go. But look at what he's actually saying. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then in verse 19, for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This means truly sanctified. It doesn't mean sanctified just by like memorizing knowledge or facts or being able to interpret everything properly. It means being truly sanctified in the truth of the gospel. Sanctified according to his word, according to his promises, according to the things he said he was doing. Christ's sacrifice for us truly redeems us, fully justifies us. It's not a fleeting hope, it's truth. And that truth sanctifies us. Paul says it this way when he's speaking to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1. It says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. This is what he's talking about. I want to just show you this. He, he says, sanctified in the truth means this. This gospel news that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners, that's the truth. And that sanctifies us. How, how, does, that, how does that work? Like what does being sanctified in this truth look like? This idea that we are broken sinners who have been put back together, redeemed, renewed, and restored because of his grace. And that our mission is to then tell the world of this incredible news. Like, look, if God can save me, he can save you. That's what Paul's declaring here. That God is able to save and he came into the world to save sinners of which we are the worst. And so being sanctified in that truth, in that gospel, what would that look like? Well, it would look like joy. Knowing we've been given this incredible gift. It would look like humility. Knowing that we did not deserve it. And it would look like love. Because that's why we were given it. Do you see the difference between just memorizing facts about the Bible and knowing things about God and saying, well, these are the things God is for and these are the things that God is against. And so now in my own flesh, in my own nature, I'm going to be for these things and against these things. Do you see how that's fruitless? But rather, we are being formed into the nature and the image of Christ, sanctified by this truth that God came into the world to save sinners of which we are the worst. Again, I ask you, is that our reputation right now? Are we known and marked by our joy and our humility and our love? Are we, are, are we known by what we are for and what we are against? Or known as a people who claim morality 
until immorality serves our desires better. I'll keep banging this drum. But nowhere in Scripture does it say that the evidence that you have been with Jesus is how well you are able to defend a moral position or to stand for truth or how many questions you get right on a morality or theological test. The evidence is simple. It is that we would love one another and that we would display the fruit of the Spirit which, as Paul says, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are not things we aspire to, but these are things that are produced in us as we abide with Jesus. They are changes of nature and character. And formed like that, sanctified like that, that is how we are sent as Jesus was sent. He sends out into the world people who look like that. I mean, think of how Jesus was sent and how did he overcome the world? Not by defeating people intellectually or shaming them or vilifying them, but rather by making the lame walk and the deaf hear and the blind see, and by declaring the good news of the kingdom of God to the poor and lost and hurting. And by taking those people that he's redeemed and restored and turning them out and saying, now go tell others. That's my desire. I want to be that. I think you do too. So be sanctified in that truth. And be sanctified by this knowledge and this understanding that Jesus prayed for us. And this this is his heart. I mean, just think and contemplate. What What does it mean that Jesus prayed these things for you, the most pressing things on his heart, that you would know him and be known by him? That you would know, that feel rock solid, that you are kept by him. And that his joy would be fulfilled in you. We're going to take communion. I'm going to have the band come up and I'm going to ask one of them to bring a communion cup with me because you would think I would learn that lesson the first first service, but I did not. But as we take communion together, this is a participation in and a remembrance of what Jesus did to secure these things for us. To secure our identity as those who are known by him and loved by him and kept by him. It is what secures us. So when we take communion, by the way, if, you, if you're here and you're not a believer in Christ, I'm so glad that you are here. That is, you are, not, you are not abnormal here. There are a lot of people here who are trying to figure this out and are exploring the claims of Jesus. And so I would just say you can just pause and you don't need to participate in this. But if you are a follower of Jesus, if you say, no, I belong to him, not that he's signing me in at the gate, but that I am latched with him and wherever he's going, that's where I am. Then be reminded 
of what he did to secure that for you. That on the night before his death, he took the bread, sat with his disciples, and he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. This is broken for you. So take and eat in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he passed it and he said, this represents my blood, the blood of the new covenant, forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. Father, as we just reflect on what this means, that we participate and remember the cross. God, I ask that you would forgive us for the sin that is in us, that continues to hang on and deter us and pull us off course and, and infiltrate every area of our minds and our hearts. As we see the, the brokenness around us, God, just remind us, because we are a forgetful people. Remind us what you have done. Remind us of the truth that we are sanctified in, that you created all things. All things came into being through you. And we were created to be in right relationship with you, to abide with you, to walk with you, to enjoy you forever. And yet we rebelled against you. The brokenness around us is our rebellion of declaring myself God and rejecting your rule. And in committing treason, you would have been just and just wiping us off the face of the earth. But instead, you have patiently, long-suffering, waited. And at the right time, you sent Jesus, who lived the life that we were meant to live and died the death that we deserved and rose from the dead defeating sin and death's hold on us. For those who've trusted in him and you've given us a way home and we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And we are renewed and in the spirit day by day learning to walk in the identity that you've already given us. God, help us to walk in that. Forgive us for when we forget who you have made us to be. And God, one day there will be glory. One day, every sad thing will come untrue. Every sorrow will be turned into joy. And all of that happens through Jesus. So Jesus, it is at your name that we bow and we confess that you are Lord and we cling to you and to your righteousness. And we pray as you did, that you would let us know you, that you would keep us and that you would fill us with your joy. Amen.